Welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to have you and it is also a pleasure to thank the sponsors of this episode. Glycanage, a science-based lab test you can take at home that estimates your biological age or what some may call your true age. Regular viewers, you might recognize the name Glycanage after my video review of my experience last summer. And by the way, you can still get 15% off your own home test kit using the code HEALTHHACKERS at the Glycanage checkout. Since making my review video, the company and I stayed in touch, and now I'm thrilled to be able to call Glycanage a current sponsor of Health Hackers. Head to glycanage.com to find out more about their test kits. And if you missed my review of Glycanage, the link to the video is in the summary text that goes with this episode. Thank you, Glycanage, for supporting Health Hackers. Now, over to the latest guest interview. This is Health Hackers episode 58. I am delighted to be speaking to registered dietitian, online women's health coach, and host of the Weightlifting Nutritionist podcast, Elena Kanicki. If you follow her on Instagram, you will know of her devotion to helping women quit restrictive rules around eating, stop over-exercising, and realize that losing their period while trying to become healthy is in fact not healthy. A quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear on Health Hackers should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score. Always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Elena, welcome. Thank you for having me. I love that introduction. I always love when people who like are familiar with my work and my Instagram and the content I put out, I love when you guys introduce me because I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great way to describe what I do. Well, good. And one of the reasons I find your social media posts so powerful is because you speak from personal experience. Can you tell us a bit about what your own relationship to food and exercise used to be like and the toll it took on your body? Sure. So it's obviously a long story as most of these things are for most women because they usually start early on in childhood or during adolescence, during puberty. So for me, it was all of those things. I would say, um, my body image issues and just the desire to lose weight and the focus on my body and feeling like my body wasn't okay really became most prominent to me around puberty because at that point you know I grew up in a, a household that was not very like not very focused on bodies they were kind of like a health conscious household which I think influenced me a bit like there's a little bit of demonization of certain foods that I think sort of set the stage for me a little bit, but at the same time, my family was great. But anyways, so around puberty was when I gained weight, as most women do around puberty. We gain fat before we get our first period as actually as a way for our estrogen levels to peak so that we can get our first period. But unfortunately, that isn't really taught to many women, so they don't expect it. And then when it happens, Either they're actively told they should lose weight or, you know, our culture just demon thinks weight gain is like always bad. So oftentimes um, it just is internalized that this is not a good thing. And then that's when issues start for a lot of women. So that was the case for me. Um, that's when I started to become more self-conscious of my body and would have, you know, people would make comments at school and things like that, which sort of definitely played a role in how I felt, even though outwardly I would never show it I was like always a confident person but internally you know kids calling me fat and stuff like that definitely impacted me 
And also I was in a group of very thin friends. So I was, there was, there was, there was a lot of comparison to my friends. And that carried me into eventually starting to actively try to lose weight around high school. And I was never athletic. I was never into sports or anything like that. I like to move my body. I like to go outside. I did gymnastics and dance and stuff like that, but I was never into like recreational exercise. So it was very forced for me. I was trying to make it a thing and I couldn't really stick to it. Like I remember I got a gym membership, would try to go to the gym and just do some stuff, but I wasn't into it. I would try to diet and then I would kind of fall off the wagon and sort of yo-yo a little bit. And then eventually I did some insane, insanely restrictive diet at the end of high school to as like a last ditch effort for me to finally gain control. And I did. And then I kind of, that was like a big turning point for me because it, I proved to myself and it was really in an unhealthy way, but I proved to myself that I could override my hunger cues and I could not listen to them. And I can have this control that really was like, it felt like a high. It was like, oh, here we go. I lost like 10 pounds in a week on this insane diet, which was mostly was mostly water weight. But I saw that number on the scale and that motivated me to be like, okay, now I can do this. From that place, I had this renewed sense of discipline. And I'm putting that in quotes because sure, discipline's like a characteristic that, that's good to have, but it was, I was misusing it. I was using it to override my body's cues and eventually make my body more unhealthy. So I started exercising a lot, became very regimented with that. I started running and I started tracking my calories and I lost a significant amount of weight and my body changed a lot. So I finally reached this place where I had always wanted to be, where I was getting attention and acceptance from everybody. Like everyone was, was looking at me and saying, oh my gosh, Lenny, you look so different. Like you look amazing. I can't believe how much weight you lost. You look so fit now. And I had, I became this person that I wanted to become where I felt like I was the hot girl. I was not, I was no longer the chubby girl in the friend group. People were giving me attention and, and praise. And then from there, that's where things really got bad. And this, I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this because once you get that external validation, disordered eating is very fueled by these superficial desires to be finding your worth and finding acceptance and finding happiness and pride in how you look. And once I got there, I was so terrified of losing that, that when I went to college, I was willing to do anything to maintain this weight. And I mean, anything. And that led me to actually being even more restrictive and losing even more weight, which then led to a loss of period, binge eating, obsession with food. And that lasted for like the next four or five years. Wow. So one thing <laughs> I want to, what, no, it, I'm so glad you did tell us this because, you know, this is, this is what you're here for. This is what people are listening for. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about something that you've mentioned a lot on your social media because it's key to this. Um, it's the, the binge cycle, because I know that this is something that heavily affected you. Can you tell us more about the binge cycle, how it plays into this? Because some people might think that if someone is binging, that must mean they're always eating, but actually that's not the whole part of the cycle, is it? The word binging, and we could talk about this if if you feel it's it's relevant, but the just the, the word binging is so misused and there's so many biases around it, which is a huge issue in the eating disorder space and why a lot of people don't get the support and the help that they need. Um, 
so yeah, you're, you're totally right. Binging majoritively is a result of restriction, whether it's actively restricting calories or it's just having a lot of restricted guilt, fear, and shame-based thoughts around food and approaches to eating. That is most of the time what's actually causing binging. So for me, that was 100% the case. I had all of those things going on, which is typical for my clients and most women who struggle with binging is that they have not only that are they not eating, literally not intaking enough calories, sometimes over-exercising as well. So they're expending a lot of calories as well. And, but then also having all of these rules and restrictions that they're living by when it comes to food to, to a point where there's so much rigidity that their body rebels and if you're struggling with true clinical binge eating, what that feels like is it, it, it literally feels like another entity is overtaking your body and that you're like at, at war with your mind. You don't want to do it. You have a part of your brain that's saying, no, 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 no. We don't want to do this. Remember, like you have this goal for how you want to look. You have this goal for your weight. You want to stick to your macros. Like, remember why you're doing this. You're trying to fight back and forth with it. And then eventually it wins. And it literally feels like you, you completely lose control and people will do crazy stuff. And I'm speaking from personal experience. So there's no judgment here, but you'll do crazy stuff for food, like eat food out of the trash, eat food that's definitely not, should not be eaten. Um, and like steal food, all these things, like you, you become just tunnel vision for food. And that is, that, that feels so strong and so intense because it truly is a survival mechanism. It's like a primal, a primal drive to eat. And that comes directly because your body perceives that there's a threat and that there's not enough food available. So it's going to try to override what you're trying, the restriction that you're trying to to put on it in literally as a means of survival, which is why it feels so intense. Because it's the restricting and the rules that you self-impose around food that then lead to this binge, like you just said, is that right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what was the turning point for you and how many years did this span? So like I said, it was freshman year of college when, um, and this is, you're in the UK, right? No, I'm in California, but to the UK uh, listeners, is, does freshman mean the first year of university? Yeah, first year of university. So first year of university is when I was, I became really terrified of gaining back the weight. So I became really restrictive, counting my cat, like super, super low calories, constantly working out, all so much rigidity around food. And then that lasted for like, maybe three months before I started binging. I lost my period first. My digestion was really screwed up. I got, I developed cystic acne all over my forehead. So there was all these signs that my body was sending me, but when you're in that state, you are in such denial. Like you can't even process, like it makes sense looking back and probably like me telling you the story, you're like, oh yeah, probably like you could see the connections of why your body would be re not responding well to this. But in that mindset, you don't see that. You're just like, oh, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm just gonna keep working out every day and eating nothing. Um, so the binging started about three months later and then that lasted throughout the, the rest of college or university. So, so that lasted for the next four years until I graduated. So for me, it was, it was binging, binging preceded that entire time. And I, I didn't have my period that entire time either. And, there, and that changed a lot. You know, I tried different diets, different, so many different 
things to try to stop binging, but I, I was just constantly trying to figure out how to stop and living in fear basically of the next time that the urge to binge came. Cause when that urge came, like I said, I felt completely powerless to it. And it felt so confusing because I had, like I said, found this discipline in myself that then once I, once I found that discipline with food and exercise, that extrapolated to everything else. Like I became a straight A student. I became so perfectionistic in type A and all my tendencies. I accomplished every single goal that I set out for myself. I had my day planned by the minute. Like I knew what I was going to eat uh, on Monday. I knew what I was going to eat on Friday. Like I was so disciplined. And, and so when I would lose control like that, it was so confusing and disturbing to me because it, it felt so misaligned with this person that I had become that I thought was so amazing. Um, so I was always trying, I would binge probably at least once or twice a week. And then once the binge was done, I was like, okay, how can I prevent this next time? And I would always try to find a new strategy. And like my, my, my life was consumed by school, exercise, eating, and then trying to prevent and recover from my binges. So you can imagine doing that for four years in college was very exhausting. And I missed out on a lot of things because of that. So when I graduated and I moved back home to New York City to live with my parents while I did my internship in graduate school to become a dietitian, I looked back at the last four years and I was like, what the hell have I been doing? I've been trying to stop this for the last four years. It's like the, top, the number one problem in my life. And I was trying, trying constantly and nothing was changing. It was getting worse. And at this point, my health was also getting worse. So I was, I had been on the birth control pill for that entire time because once I lost my period, my gynecologist was just like, oh, you're just super fit. This is pretty normal. Just go on the pill and, and this will regulate your period. We could talk about that. Cause you know, my, you know, my opinions on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but I had tried to go off the pill a couple of times. Cause I was like, all right, let's see if I can get my period. Like I was getting even more into health and hormones and stuff like that. And I was like, this just doesn't feel right. Every time I would go off, I still couldn't get it. So when I came home, I was like, okay, I don't have a period. I have a terrible relationship to food and feel completely out of control. Even though I dedicate my entire life to controlling my body and food. So what's that about? My digestion had hit a really low point where it was like daily, daily issues. Um, I had nutrient deficiencies. I got blood work done and my, my, I had low blood pressure and nutrient deficiencies. And I was like, I'm not happy. I'm not healthy. Like, what is this all for? And I think that kind of existential crisis sort of maybe snapped me into reality of like, okay, Maybe this has to do with the fact that I'm constantly trying to lose weight. Maybe this has to do with the fact that I'm constantly trying to try the next diet or control myself around food. I like, I didn't want to admit that to myself for so many years. And I think that like, that kind of snapped me into reality after graduation and looking back on what I had done with my time, I was like, something needs to change here. And then I became kind of open to the idea of, stopping tracking macros. Cause that was my big thing at the time I was, was and am very into lifting. And that was, that was like a, trying to be a bodybuilder and whatever. And I started to open my, I started to open my eyes to more of like an intuitive eating approach. And then from there that kind of sparked my recovery. 
So now when you're working with others, what are the key signs or behaviours that tell you a person has a negative relationship with food and exercise? Are there any habits, for example? That's a good, that's a very good question. Um, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question before. I would say, so the thing is, it's so different for everybody. So I'm kind of against like habits or behaviors indicating that something is disordered. I don't really like to look at it that way because I think so many behaviors can be, can be disordered or they cannot be disordered depending on how you feel about them, how they're impacting the rest of your life and the intention behind them. So like take macro tracking, for example. I don't think that's an, inherent, an inherently disordered behavior. Some people would disagree with me, but I don't think that is inherently disordered. I, and I by macro tracking, you mean counting your carbs, counting fats, calories, proteins? Counting, you can say counting calories. Some people just count their fat, carbs, protein, but just any sort, yeah. Let's say calorie tracking or tracking your protein, fat, carbs. I don't think that's an inherently disordered behavior. I think it, ha it holds a lot of risk for for turning into a disordered behavior, but it's not inherently disordered. People can do that um, without, without it developing into disorder. When something becomes disordered, it's when it's causing you, um, on, it's taking away from your health, your happiness, your quality of life. So that is really, that's really when something becomes an, an, a sign to me that something is disordered. Now, the, now on the flip side of that, because of what I do and what I know about disordered eating and how it shows up in women and body image issues, which are the root cause of most disordered eating, they are so prevalent among women that I kind of assume, I, I, I kind of look at things already from the place of like, okay, how can this be disordered? Because I know it's so common. So for instance, if I hear like a woman's DMing me on Instagram and she tells me like, oh, um, I lost my period. And like, I say something about, okay, how's your relationship with food? And they'll say, well, you know, I eat really healthy. I eat, um, you know, I, I get vegetables and blah, 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 blah. I like to exercise in this way. When someone says I eat really healthy, I'm almost already skeptical. Not that it's not a good, a fine thing to try to eat in a way that's healthy and prioritize vegetables and stuff like that. But it's so easily for women becomes disordered because so many of us are going at it from this place of bad, a bad relationship to our bodies. And we're going at it from the wrong intention. So I would say anything that pertains to weight loss or intentional health and fitness goals, I am kind of like, I dig deeper because I want to see how it feels to them. Um, but really it, to me, it's about, it is about how it feels and how it shows up in your life. So is this causing anxiety? Is it causing guilt? Is it causing shame? Are you feeling out of control? That's a big one. Like if any, if any woman I talked to said she's feeling out of control around food, that's a big red flag for me. Obviously if she's lost her period, that's a big red flag. Um, if it's impacting social connection, like they don't want to go out, they don't want to see their friends. They're afraid to drink alcohol or um, like smoke weed or use, or some sort of like, some sort of, um, what's the word? Like some gets inebriated in some way, not that anyone has to do that, but if they're afraid to do it because they're afraid of what's going to happen with food, that's a red flag to me. Um, yeah, social connection is a big one and social 
eating is like the social aspect of things. That is a big one for most of my clients. So those are some of the things. So when women come to you for help in changing their relationships to food and exercise, where do you start? What are the first steps you take with them? So the first steps we take, the, the first steps are just really examining where restriction and rules are showing up in their life. So it's going to be with food and exercise. Um, and that, that's where we start because it really all comes from there. First, we need to examine how this is showing up and how restriction is showing up because so many, I mean, there's, I kind of have two types of clients and I, I speak with two types of women. There are the ones who know that they're doing things that are restrictive, but they're too afraid to let go or they're trying to justify it to themselves or um, they try, they're trying to stop, but it's just too scary. And then there's people who think they're not restricting, but they really are. And usually in, in both cases, they are, there's a lot of restrictions they're not even fully aware of because so it's so culturally, culturally accepted and so common that, that, that just makes it hard. Um, and then there's also the denial aspect of things when you're going through it. So that is really where we have to start. And that is the foundation of basically everything that I do because in my, my philosophy is that we have, to, we have to literally examine and then clear all of those restrictions and challenge each of them because they're all coming from fear. And if we continue to live in that fear, we're going to do things that are not healthy for our relationship to food, for our bodies, relationship to exercise. So it really starts, it really starts there. How much of your time do you think is actually spent on trying to improve your client's mindset and self-image? Yeah, um, all of it. <laughs> That's like basically all that we do. I mean, I do focus a lot on hormones as well, obviously. So that gets a little bit more into like the sciencey stuff, which I really love. Um, and then as, as we get further in their recovery process, like once they're really there, they, they know how to listen to their hunger cues. Now they're no longer restricting. They have a free and peaceful and intuitive relationship with food and exercise. Then we can start to actually talk more about the contents of what they're eating. And if they want to start incorporating nutrition or fitness related goals from a healthy place, then we can talk more about that stuff. But most of the work that I do is mindset, body image, fear of weight gain, um, learning how to listen to hunger cues again. But we don't talk that much about what they're actually eating. I don't give advice about what to actually eat for most of my coaching. It's really, it's really more about helping them tune into what they want and their desires and, and their intuition around food because that's really what guides them in the direction of where they want to go because everyone's different. And it's once they learn to listen to their bodies again, our bodies are very smart and they, they want to be healthy. So once we can learn to interpret those cues better, they'll guide us in a, in a very good direction. How do you convince a client who might have built an entire identity on being lean, super fit? Maybe they built their career on this and being highly disciplined around their food. How do you convince them to give themselves permission to eat whatever they want and rest as much as their body wants to? First of all, I don't convince them. I, when clients come to me, I, I don't take clients who are, not, who are not ready to make a change. They all have the fear 
they all have that fear. And I've worked with health professionals, personal trainers, health coaches who feel that way. Um, and all of them, they, my marketing is very clear that what the work that I'm going to do is, is going to be around stepping into these fears and these restrictions. But when people come to me, they come to me because they still have that fear, but they're now, they can't do it anymore. Like in a similar position to how, where I was, it's like, okay, I'm really scared to start letting go of restriction to potentially gain weight. And I, that's like my, that's their biggest fear. That was my biggest fear. That's their biggest fear in life is to gain weight, which that's something that's not a good thing in and of itself, because if that's the worst thing that happens to you, like that's okay. It's not the end of the world, but um, that's, that's their biggest fear. So they all have that fear, but it's gotten to a point where they are so, their lives are so being so negatively impacted by the disordered eating and by clinging on to this identity that's no longer serving them that they they can't do it anymore so they're like okay I'm scared but I'm willing to make some changes so I don't convince them I take people from that place because if you try to convince somebody who's in the depths of their disordered eating and is not ready to admit it to themselves they will get mad at you they'll deny they're not gonna they're not gonna do anything if somebody tried to come to me like a year in to my struggles and tell me just eat whatever you want and you're going to gain weight, but go through this recovery process. I'd be like, hell no, that's not happening. So unfortunately you have, there's a certain level of having to get to a point where things suck so bad that you're like, okay, I got to stop. Um, so there's that. But then once they're with me in that place, we really do have to fight with the eating disorder. We have to fight with that. And I use the word eating disorder. A lot of people might not resonate with that word, but I want to be clear when I use the word eating disorder, I'm not talking about like anorexia, bulimia. I'm talking about any sort of issues with food really, because I, I think eating just the word eating disorder can be used more broadly, but regardless, I'm fighting with these restrictions and these fears of weight gain in, in these people's heads. And we really just have to hold on to why they decided to start this process in the first place. So we don't make the fear of waking go away. And then that's how they take the steps. We have to see the fear and then really do it anyways. And that's going to look different for each of my clients. So some of them are willing to take bigger steps because they're like, okay, I have this vision in my head of what life is going to be like when I'm finally free from binge eating, when I finally get my period back, like we have to really hone in to what it is they're working towards. So some of my clients want their period back because they want to get pregnant. Some of them are like me and they're, they're just, they very much do care about health. They want to live a long, healthy life. They're health focused, they're wellness focused. And they've come to the realization that not having a period is not healthy and that's not in alignment with their values. So that feels powerful to them with binging. It's, it, it impacts so much of their social life, their relationships, their sex life. Their, their happiness just in their day-to-day -day life, their quality of life, and they no longer want to live that way anymore. So they have to hold on to that vision of, they have of how life is going to be when they're free from these things, and then take little steps in the face of the fear, and then that's how the fear goes away. You don't just make the fear go away, and then you take the steps. You hold on to that vision that you have, and that part of that vision that is stronger than the fear of waking, and then we take steps baby step after baby step. Some people are ready to take bigger steps than others, but that's fine. We can work with that. It's just, we need to be willing to just take the tiniest step forward in the face of the fear. And then it gets easier as we keep going. 
Talking about the importance of having regular periods and hormonal health is something you do very well. And I know we call the loss of periods for several months hypothalamic amenorrhea, but would you say that sometimes just very irregular cycles or long gaps between periods can be an indication that lifestyle factors like dieting, exercising, or stress are having a negative effect? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, typically before before a woman loses her period altogether from under eating and over exercise, or um, it can not just be under eating, but restricting certain food groups. But yeah, what you're talking about, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Before we get to that place, typically you'll see some warning signs in your cycle before then. Um, so yes, late periods, going longer between periods, lighter periods. If you notice your periods used to be you know, regular flow. And now it's like barely anything's happening or it's super pink or you're just getting some spotting. Or even if you're just noticing that, that getting lighter, or if your period's getting shorter, like you only bleed for a day and you used to bleed for four days, all of these can be, can be signs that your period, you're moving in that direction. And can we just address the myth that you have to be incredibly thin for your periods to stop? Yeah, that's just completely untrue. <laughs> like almost none of my clients are underweight, are clinically underweight. They may be underweight for their bodies, but they're not clinically underweight. And you can lose your period at an overweight BMI. I had irregular periods and hypothalamic amenorrhea for the best part of 20 years. I would say I was slim, but there were certainly times when people did not seem to think I was too slim. I exercised, but I wasn't extreme about it. Now I spent some of those years on the pill, so any natural cycle was stopped then anyway. But how common is it, do you think, for women to be told, you're not having periods, so you should just go on the pill? And why do they get given that advice? Oh, this is like one of the things that, it literally makes my hair stand up on my arms. So I'm getting that reaction right now. Um, it's so, it's so frustrating to me because it's, it's, I, I never, I didn't realize how common it was until I started doing this work. And especially now that I have a larger following on Instagram, I talk, I hear women's stories every single day, even regard, even if I'm not working with them as clients, it is so common, so common for doctors to just tell, to tell women with hypothalamic amenorrhea that the, just to go on the pill and, and that this is normal. Like I've done several posts on this because I've heard ridiculous stuff, ridiculous, like telling, telling women that, oh, you have to be below a certain BMI to lose your period from under eating and over exercise, telling women that this is just a normal byproduct of being fit, telling women that, oh, you just have, some people just lose their periods. So I've heard that. I'm like, what does that even mean? That's not even based in science. And I'm a dietitian. I'm not a doctor. And I'm reading the position papers from the medical journals that these doctors are supposed to be reading. And this is not even the, this is not what's, what's even, they're supposed to be doing, but it's so pervasive. So your, what was the first part of your question? The second part was, why does this happen? Was yeah. the first part of your question? Was how common do you think it is? And it sounds like very common. Oh, okay. It, it happens because it's just negligence. I think it's a mixture of negligence. It's actually, it's I would say it's three different things. Sometimes, and this is, it's not just an issue with doctors. I've heard this from other diet people who've seen other dietitians. 
um, not just med not just like primary care physicians, but gynecologists, endocrinologists, dietitians, uh, personal trainers, like a lot of different people have this perspective. So on the one hand, I think there's definitely an issue of um, in the, our medical system, especially in the US, it, there's just a lot of pressure on doctors and not enough time. And then sometimes, of course, in every profession, there's negligent practitioners who are not doing continuing education to understand what, how they can best treat their, their patients or their clients. That's an issue. I think the second issue is that we just have a very, very big weight bias in most westernized countries now in general. I think because it's sort of like a pushback against the obesity epidemic and stuff like that is that now because we all have this cultural fear of getting fat and gaining weight, we just assume that you know everyone should be super super slim and that if you're if you're not that's always healthy and there's can never be anything wrong with that, um, and that you can only start to experience these symptoms of restriction if you're underweight. That's like definitely a, 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 a thought process that's out there. Um, and I forget what the third one was, but those are the two of the big ones. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, when I got my periods back last year, it's amazing. I now have one every month. It's, it still feels like a novelty. Yay! Um, I still get excited on the first day of my period. And I've yeah. had mine back for like four years now. Oh, well done. Well, I, I had put on a few extra pounds and... To me, it just seems that my body must just prefer being this weight. I was also doing a lot of relaxing at the time. But would you say that every woman has a different level of body fat that their hormones just function best at? And that will look different on every woman. Of course. Yeah. So this is the concept of um, people call it different things, but you, you, you've, every, most people have heard of the concept of set point weight. Um, or set weight, or there's also, I think it's called like the dual control model is what it's called in the research. But it's basically just this concept of, and it makes logical sense that everybody has genetically, just like we have a height and these things that are genetically predetermined. We also have a body fat level for each of us that's unique to us. That is where our body, and it's a range. It's not one body fat, obviously, but we, and, it, and it's really about fat. It's not really about weight because if you think about it, weight is just like the number on the scale and there's muscle in there as well, which I guess muscle probably that's accounted for for sure as well. There's a genetic component to that, but let's just focus on fat because fat secretes hormones, hunger hormones, insulin, um, sex hormones. It's an active tissue. Like people think fat is just this like, disgusting thing that sits on our body because we have such a negative connotation towards it, but it is extremely important. It's like an organ and it secretes all these different things that regulate our hunger, our hormones, our blood sugar levels, like all of these things. So yeah, women all, we all have a range of body fat where our body likes to sit that where things are going to be healthy for us. Estrogen level is going to be healthy periods are going to be healthy. Hunger hormones are going to feel normal to where you can eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, and it doesn't feel like this weird, confusing thing. Um, so yeah, that's definitely the case. And for women who have lost their period and they're not on the pill and they're thinking, actually, life is quite nice without periods. What would you want them to know about the potential negative health consequences of not menstruating? Because I think this needs to be talked about. Yeah, I hear that a lot. Like, I'll have people commenting on my posts, but oh, that you lost a period, like you're lucky. 
And <clears throat> one, that's just insensitive, but two, I would say, regardless, I, doesn't, if you, I don't care if you like your period or you don't like it. It is a, uh, uh, this is, this pe some people are not gonna like to hear this, but biologically as women, one of our main functions is to, re our, our, our main function is to reproduce biologically. Obviously that doesn't happen. We don't have to, we're now higher brained humans. So we do not have to, we don't have to do that. But biologically, that's still a fact. We're still very similar to how we were hundreds of thousands of years ago and biologically. So if that's our main function and that's not happening, that's a problem. That is, that means that our body is not functioning as it is supposed to. And several medical journals have actually categorized the menstrual cycle as a fifth vital sign because it is such a good marker of a woman's overall health. If your period and your cycle is healthy, that is a sign that your overall, your body is probably in that leaning in that direction as well. So issues in your health will often show up in your cycle. And this goes way beyond just losing a period or having late periods. Like there are so many intricacies to this that I probably won't get into today. But um, yeah, I would say that you have to understand that it is it is broadly, it's a, it's a marker of your overall health. Some of the big ones that people talk about in terms of the negative effects of not having a cycle are bone loss. That's the biggest risk. If you go long enough without having a period, that can be a really big risk. Like if things get severe enough and your estrogen levels get low enough for long enough, you can get into the osteoporotic range and that is, can really become an issue long-term because after menopause, women's bone, bone loss or bone health and like bone density rapidly declines. So you wanna have high, you wanna be maximizing your bone mass during your, your reproductive years so that once it does go down, you're starting from a high place. Um, so that's one of the big ones. And then also there is risks to your heart health and your brain health. So higher risk of Alzheimer's, higher risk of heart disease long-term from having a loss of period. And that's just like the basic stuff. There's ways that this is impacting you in your day-to-day -day life that you're not even aware of, whether it's libido, your sexual health, your skin health, your hair health, your digestive health. like. It is, it is intricately involved with a lot of other systems in your body. And you're going to feel better if your period is healthy and you're cycling regularly, you should feel better. If you don't, that probably means you have some other hormonal issues you have to work on, but it doesn't have to be that way. So that, that's what I would say. In my 20s, I was in a skiing accident and broke my pelvis in four places. And oh. when I um, had various scans, the consultant and I were, were both shocked at how low my bone density was. Now, mm. I can't prove that it was because of my loss of periods or the irregularity of my periods over so many years, but it does make me wonder. If you don't mind, if you've got time, two more questions. So yeah. um, the first one, why do you think it is that some women and men have developed such complex and complicated relationships with food and eating? I, I get this is a broad question. Yeah, broad question. Um, I would say it goes back to body image issues um, and our cultural obsession with appearance and weight. I think that actually, I know that's a huge part of it because if you look at the statistics on eating disorders in non-Westernized countries, 
they're extreme, extremely different and so much lower than, than, than they are in westernized countries. And I, my theory on this is, and I've heard from um, people in, in this field that this is correct. I haven't done a lot of research on this, but this is my theory that I've been told by people who study these kinds of things that I'm right. So take this for what it is. But I really think that the, what happens in when countries westernize and develop, we start to have more like commoditization of food and more processed foods, more highly palatable foods, more wealth disparities, more poverty, more socioeconomic issues, more obsession with producing and constantly working, which leads us to sacrifice our self and our self-care and our sleep and our health in other ways. And I think all of these things are what have influenced the health problems that come with being West in westernized countries. And that includes obesity and heart disease and diabetes. And then because we have that, we see, okay, obesity, that means this person's fat. That means that they must be overeating all the time and they're sedentary and they don't exercise. But that's not really the case. Obesity is such a multifactorial issue. And like I said, it has to do with all of those things that I just talked about. So but because we see that we say, okay, westernized countries equals fat equals overeating equals we need to always be dieting and we always need to be controlling our weight and we always need to be focused on that. And then that everyone's swimming in that toxic soup. So we're all being influenced by that. Then you add to that for women, there's just a, a this goes back to lots of other things that I won't go into now, but there's a huge issue that we have as a female population where we put our worth and importance on our looks. And that is like, we, we equate those two things and every woman deals with this basically. And, and if you don't think you, you're, you're dealing with this, I would think again, unless you've done the work to kind of unlearn that, it's we are all impacted by it. And when you're willing to put, when your looks equal your happiness, your worth, and that's the most, basically one of the most important things to you, you're going to do things around food that lead to these issues where you're binge eating, where your hunger cues are not working properly anymore. And I think it stems from both of those things. And finally, what would you say to women listening or watching who are missing their period? They think the behaviors and symptoms you've outlined in this episode sound just like them. They're in that toxic soup that you mentioned. What would you say to them? I would say do some deeper diving and looking into what you really want out of life and what you really value in life and zoom out a little bit. So I understand how it feels to be, to feel like the most important thing is, you know, your next workout or how much you're eating that day or week or how you look, but just take a little time, maybe journal on this and thinking about what really matters most to you in life. What do you want to look back on your life and how do you want to feel if you lived, hopefully knock on wood, live a long life into your old age, you look back, like what have, do you have wanted to spend? What would you have want to have spent your time doing? What matters to you most? What are your goals and, and, and uh, visions for how you want your life to look? And then how is your relationship with food, your health, your relationship to exercise, your body image, holding you back from that? And then get really real with yourself about that. Because if you follow that path where you're at now, is that if you continue this, if you don't change anything, you continue down this path, how are things going to end up? 
Are they going to end up in the way that you really want them to? Are they going to end up in a way where you're living in alignment with these larger values that you have? Or is it taking you away from those things, which it often is. So I would really do the deeper work for that and then try to find some support, whether it's a community of women who are, are also trying to work on these things, whether you work with a dietitian or a therapist, whether you just read some books or listen to some podcasts, like anything to actually start taking action to live more in alignment with your values and your goals and, and your vision of life. Elena, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Such wise words. Health Hackers listeners and viewers, I will put links to Elena's social media in the summary text that goes with this video and podcast episode so you can reach out to her to hear more about her work and how she might be able to help. Thank you for being with us. And remember, Health Hackers is on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and the Health Hackers website. Until next time, bye-bye.